0: turn there, but first let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's timeless like you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that um, the things you have to say are valid for us and we can continue to learn, even if we can memorize the passages, Lord, there's still work that you want to do in our hearts through them. So we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, you give us understanding of your truth, and that we would enter into worship as we read your word, that we would praise you for your wisdom and your your insights and your, your majesty, because you are the God of all. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we worship you, we praise you, and we thank you. We're grateful, Lord, for your... You're providing of this place, and we do pray for those who are ailing. We pray for those who um, are in quarantine and feel very alone. We ask that you would comfort them, Lord. You bring them peace, and think for the Yankoffs as well. That you would bless them. You would ease their grief, and you would continue to uphold your people with your strength as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 6, starting in verse 39. Do you ever think it's odd how the best athletes in the world have coaches? So the best cricketers, the best golfers, the best, um, like like your, your best skills can only take you so far, and it takes the the skill of a coach who can see your problems and know how to develop your talent, how to direct it in the right way, and how to make you successful as you age, how to change your game, how to how to stay ahead of the competition, have a game plan and a strategy, and play towards your strengths. Because even the best players can fall into bad habits, fall into a slump, uh, struggle. And in a similar way, the Lord, he points out things that that a video can't point out. I remember I was having a hard time driving. I was golfing and I, don't, I didn't have a coach or anything, but I just videotaped myself swing. And I was like, yuck, that is awful. Look what I'm doing with my front leg. Look how my arm is bending. I was able to see things that I didn't know I was doing. It's like Jesus does that with his disciples. We think we're on our game. That we're, you know, we know the truth and we're walking in it. Because we know the truth, we must be walking in it. And Jesus is able to point out those areas where we are, we are falling short, where we thought we knew something, but really we don't know. And how to make those adjustments. That we can't just change our behavior, but we need our hearts to change. And only he can do that. Jesus humbled himself to put on human flesh, but we don't identify with him as a peer or an equal because he is God. He is the king of kings. We have to admit to being the blind one who imagines that we know what's right, the hypocrite that suggests others are to blame or the one with the the evil heart that we've been talking about as Jesus has gone through the sermon on the plain. The cool thing about what Jesus does that's very different than a coach is he's actually, like in tennis, you're not allowed to be coached during the game. They'll look up and say, what's with that? And the coach will like wink or do something. But like Jesus is actually, he is in the game with you and he helps you to accomplish his perfect will. So he doesn't just identify the problem. He doesn't just tell you what you need to do to fix it, but he's with you and he's going to help you to accomplish the thing that he wills for your life. So it's like he's, in, he's helping you in real time to establish you and to uh, help your, his love flow through you. So Luke 6, starting in verse 39. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher." In this passage, Jesus had been teaching his disciples to love people, to do good, to even pray for their enemies, as they wanted men to do to them, so they should do to others, that they were to judge themselves righteously, to to avoid judging others based upon appearances, to forgive and be merciful. That's really the context of what he's been talking about. And now he speaks a parable and he says, Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? Now the blind can try to lead the blind, but it would be presumptuous, even dangerous to do so. But let me say, I've been really impressed by some visually impaired people that I have met where um, going to restaurants by themselves, Laura and I had season tickets to the Padres, so it's a baseball team in San Diego, and we had like tickets in the upper deck, and there was a blind man who by himself came all the way and found his seat in the stadium. And I'm like, if I was in my house blind, I don't even know if I could find it on the TV or the radio. But here's a guy who traveled all that way to go to a game, to experience the, the feel of Padres baseball, which was not great at the time. But it was really imp- I was impressed um, that he could navigate that. But there's a reason why airline pilots need to have good eyesight, and why you need to take an eye exam before you drive a motor vehicle is because you need to be able to see the runway. You need to be able to see your instruments and the signals and a car swerving in front of you because it's not just you, it's everyone in your car that you are responsible for, and they want you to be able to see the danger, to see the road, and to follow it. Paul, when he was struck blind on the road to Damascus, He needed to be led by the hand by someone who could see to the street called straight where he stayed. Now, a disciple, we don't always realize our blindness. We don't recognize it. It's like your blind spot driving, right? You all have a blind spot, and so you need to actually turn your head to make sure that there's no one there when you're uh, changing lanes. That's why we need a teacher. We need an instructor. We need one who points out our blind spots. We all have a natural blind spot in our eye because of uh, how the nerves pull through. The Pharisees, they were teachers of God's law. They saw themselves as the seeing ones, that their job was to bring the wisdom of God, the light of his word to the blind, the instructor of the ignorant. But Jesus was pointing out that they were blind guides because they did not trust in him. Their hearts had not been changed. They were students of the law, but they taught as God's commands the traditions of men. And so they undermined the spirit of it. So he says, if you're like your teacher, if you're a student of a teacher, you will grow to be like your teacher. You won't go undermining the teacher. Please turn to Matthew 15, verse 10. This is another portion where Jesus refers to the blind leading the blind, and the consequence of that, the disciples were uh, eating without washing their hands according to, to the tradition of the elders, and the Pharisees found fault, which is something Pharisees tend to do. They always find fault with others, and they don't see their own faults. And Jesus answered them. They say, well, why are they eating with unwashed hands? Why are they doing what's unlawful? And Jesus answers them with a question. He says, why do you break the law through your tradition? In vain you worship me by teaching as doctrine commands of men. And then he continues in Matthew fifteen ten. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. That's what happens when the blind leads the blind. They, they go towards danger and disaster, not realizing it, and they both go. The Pharisees were focused on outward appearances and keeping the law of Moses, but God looked at the heart. He saw what their hearts were like, and they they sought to avoid defilement by washing their hands, but it wasn't germs that were the issue. It's that they were proud, judgmental, legalistic, unloving. They condemned others, so the sin was in their heart. They could have set an example of meekness and mercy and compassion and love. They were offended by Jesus, the teacher, the good teacher, the uh, really the only rabbi that we should follow, the one who actually has the spiritual eyes to see the truth and loves you enough to say it to your face. They were offended by what he said. I'm encouraged that Jesus did not spend his time trying to reason with these blind hypocrites, these blind guides. He said, in due time, my heavenly Father will uproot them. He didn't cross swords with them, but he says this, they are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. It might take falling into a ditch for the blind, the spiritually blind person, to realize they need help. That would, be, that would wake you up if you fell into a, a ditch of cold water that had been stagnant and nasty, and there was no way to get out. You'd realize, I need help to get out of this ditch. I need help to get clean. You know that the law actually has commands concerning other people's animals? In the law, Exodus 23:4 and 5, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now, if God cares so much for animals, doesn't he also care about people? People who are going astray, people who are the blind leading the blind, both, both parties. He cares for both of them, and he cares if someone's being loaded down by a heavy burden. He surely went to those who were going astray. He went to those and lifted their burdens. But those who are blinded by hypocrisy, Jesus said, let them alone. And sometimes that can be the loving thing to do. It's a hard thing to do because we think we've got the truth. And we have the wisdom of God. But at a point, Jesus said, let them alone. If the blind lead the blind, they will end up in a ditch. And being in that ditch might be the thing that causes them to seek salvation, to seek the Lord. And some of you, some of us, I know we were in that ditch. We spent, some of us, a long time in that ditch. But he brought us out. He brought us to the realization that we need help, and we need him for cleansing. Luke 6, verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter seven, but there's really more for us to see here in the context of blindness because that's following on where Jesus has been. Now, it's, it's ironic that a blind person would think themselves capable to lead a blind person, right? That would be odd. For them to say, I am the most qualified to lead that person because I too am blind. You'd be like, well, no. If, if they can't see where they're going because they're blind, what makes you think as a blind person would be the best one to lead them? No, it's someone who can see would be the best person to lead them. Jesus shows how hypocrisy blinds us. When we uh, have hypocrisy in our life. We are the ones blinded. Now, the word hypocrite in the Greek, it's an actor under assumed character. So it's basically our word actor. It's the idea of somebody who, and we know that actors, they're they're paid or uh, volunteer to adopt various mannerisms, to change their behavior, to wear a disguise, to become someone that they're not. That's who a hypocrite is—an actor. And a paid actor can improve their skills with with lessons and with coaching and with training and practice, but really, all humans are born hypocritical geniuses. We don't need training at all. It's so natural for us to be hypocritical, to be blind. Uh, In our natural state, we are the blind leading the blind. We are the one with the plank in the eye that we don't notice. We don't even see it. Now there's a predictable thing that happens when we come to Christ and he opens our eyes to see the truth. We start getting knowledge and we start getting puffed up. We start getting a bit proud because we see things that other people can't see. We are the privileged ones and we are the ones who now have God's wisdom. And we rejoice in it, but we start rejoicing in ourselves and our ability to know things. Uh, Paul, after he said, all have knowledge, and 1 Corinthians 8.1, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Notice he says, all have knowledge, so all can be puffed up. But he says, but love does, does not puff itself up. It seeks to build others up. It seeks to edify others. It's lifting them up rather than promoting yourself. So knowledge alone, that moves us to self-reliance, hypocrisy. But love is it leads us to greater dependence and reliance upon God. God provided his law, which is like a mirror. It shows us our need for forgiveness, and it's unable to cleanse us. It's like if you noticed your face was smudged, your hands were dirty, you would not wipe them on the mirror and think that they were clean. No, you would need something else for that. You need soap and water, um, So there's no mentor, no pastor, no teacher, no knowledge in itself that can cleanse you. We need Jesus to cleanse us through his shed blood that we receive by grace through faith in him. He provided atonement. He provided forgiveness. He provides the gospel, this way of salvation. And when we begin our journey of faith in Christ, we start hungry, we're excited, but it doesn't take too long before we start resembling, you know, we've gone from the excitable, trainable puppy to like this rather sedentary, heavy-set dog, um, if you want to compare us to animals, kind of stuck in a routine, like, okay, I'm going to go lay in the sunspot for a while, now it's dinner time, you start eating, um, you bark at the mailman, you have this routine that you do, and we do it around spiritual things, and... Uh, in our mind, when we mature to a point, we feel obligated or like we have the right now to criticize or to point out faults in others when our eyes have glazed over with cataracts and we're really not seeing very clearly. But we think we've earned it, right? We've earned the right now to say something, but that, that's hypocrisy. Paul goes on in the next passage in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, and 3. He says, and if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So what's, what should we value more? Having knowledge or being known by God that you love him? Because knowledge alone, it's nothing. It tends to puff us up. Now, knowledge is good. Knowledge is necessary, right? The knowledge of Christ and salvation, very critical. But we can become critical because of what we know. So here's the point. Recognizing flaws in others or admitting that you have a plank in your own eye doesn't mean that you have begun to repent, right? I can admit that I'm a sinner. I can admit that I have problems, or that I'm proud or a hypocrite, that's that's simply a statement of fact. I shouldn't get points for that because I'm just admitting the truth that God has revealed to me, right? Um, It's for us to take off the mask, to remove the disguise, to confess that I'm in sin, to walk in humility, gentleness, and start loving others according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, Like I did for all those years, I had the plank in my eye. And it still can pop out from time to time. But what about all those people that have specks in their eyes? What about them? What if no one tells them the truth? And they just continue in their ignorance. If I leave them alone, how will anything change? And and God's voice thunders, is Jesus Christ a savior or not? Is he the light of the world or not? How do you suppose you came to the conclusions you have? It's because he revealed them to you. And we have a lot of misunderstandings in our heads about what the truth is because we are limited and we are biased and we are the blind ones, right? We need God to reveal it to us. As long as we ignore the plank in our own eye, we're like the Pharisee stumbling towards the ditch in blindness and we will end up there. Praise the Lord, our bodies are created that when you have a piece of glass in your eye, it's telling you something. Like, this is an irritant. This is a problem. God's given every person a conscience. He's given them a conscience. He's given them his word. He will speak to them. He will use maybe that ditch, maybe that discomfort, maybe a trial to cause them to say, hey man, can you take a look at this? I remember doing insulation years ago and a piece of, like, it, it, I used to work with fiberglass a lot, and sometimes there would be large pieces of glass that had not become fibrous. They were still chunks, and one flew into my eye. And, and I was like, oh, man. I tried to get it out, couldn't, so I had to get my friend, you know, he just, uh, just got it with one. It was probably not the right way to do it, but it worked, <laughs> and it was fine. There was no damage. But it's like, if you have a splinter in your eye, if you've got debris in your eye. Your body is going to be sending you messages. Your eye is going to be red and uncomfortable. And as a believer, when you are in sin, God has ways of convicting you and opening your eye to the truth of your need to repent. So let's not ignore that weepy eye. Let's bring it to the Lord. Luke 6:43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit, its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Hypocrisy in the heart of someone is nearly impossible for us to see in others, but the kind of fruit that a tree bears, which it only bears one type of fruit, right, that identifies what kind of tree it is. Uh, Jesus says a good tree does not bear bad fruit because that would make it a bad tree, right? A a bad tree does not bear good fruit because that would make it a, a, a good tree. So he's saying if it's, if it's a bad tree, it's going to produce bad fruit. Now, when speaking of good trees, Jesus used the Greek word kalos, which means handsome or beneficial. So you've walked by the fruit bowl, and sometimes the fruit looks good. Other times the fruit looks plastic or not good, right? You're like, ew, there's like a lot of flies, it's dripping, bad, not not agreeable. The smell is off. Um, Now, our opinion of a fruit tree is based upon its fruitfulness. Does it actually produce? Now, you might prefer figs over grapes or apples over pears, but we don't need to debate, based upon the leaves, what kind of tree that is. We just need to wait for it to produce fruit, then we'll see it, we'll taste it, and we'll recognize, oh, that was a pear tree all along. I thought it was a, a plum tree. Some of those fruit leaves can look really similar. And, and the style of tree as well, the trunk and the, the branches. As a kid, we had a peach tree in the backyard that, that I think it was, well, it was a bad tree. It really never produced but like one or two, maybe a handful of, of peaches in a season. And then one year, it was just loaded. It was so stocked with green fruit. We were all like, oh, preserves and pies, and we had great plans. Woke up one morning, it was falling over. White ants had completely hollowed out the whole trunk. And we we're just like, what? Oh, that was a bad tree. <laughs> it was just a it was a bad tree. We had no idea. There was something going on inside of the tree that it was a sickly tree. And that's why for all that time it hadn't produced. Now Jesus compares a fruitful tree to a good man who speaks good things. So it's someone who treasures good things. They're treasuring what's good in their heart, and he uses a different word for good. So just like there's different words in the Greek for love, there's different words for good. This one is agathos, which speaks of upright moral character, which is only true of God. Only God has this kind of uprightness, this righteousness. Pointed out in Mark 10, 17 and 18, it says, now as he, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, agathos. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So his point was saying, why are you calling me good, a good teacher? Because only God is good. So if I am a good teacher, then I am God. If I'm an upright, moral man, then that's who I am. Only God is righteous and upright. A man might have a handsome appearance, but he needs a new heart to be spiritually fruitful. He says, if your heart treasures what's good, there will be good things coming out of your mouth to match. It won't be uh, a disconnect between your heart and the things that you say and how you use your words. So the fruit that a tree produces, it's evident of what kind of tree it is, or if it's a good tree. And in the same way, the things that we say out of the abundance of the heart, they come. So whatever's being stored up in your heart, those thoughts, those desires, they will come out and provide evidence of what sort of condition your heart is in. So a person who's walking in the spirit, they will not make a, a practice of cursing, but they will bless Someone who is um, walking in a good way will edify instead of condemn. They will rebuke directly rather than slandering and gossip around them, right? They're going to go to the person because they love them. I like what Adam Clark said in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, "...the tongue is fitly compared to a pump which empties the heart, but neither fills nor cleanses it. The love of God is a hidden spring which supplies the heart continually." And never permits it to be dry or unfruitful. A thermometer that indicates what the temperature of the air is of a body or a room. And in the same way, the words we say and how we use them, it's an indicator of what your heart is like, what's going on inside there. We do well just not to avoid cursing or avoid swearing or make an effort to hide what I really think. Don't we do that? Right? We think something, but then there's this like invisible filter that says, this isn't the right time for that, or this isn't the right company for that. Or how am I going to frame this so that it's not hurtful to someone? Or maybe I shouldn't say that at all, today or ever. The pump in our pool, it circulates water to chlorinate it. It also skims off some of the debris that falls. We have these palms in the backyard and uh, trees that throw a bunch of rubbish down. And so it collects in this basket. And then there's a secondary filter right before the pump that it also can fill up with these little berries that fall off the trees. And uh, when that basket starts filling up, you can hear the pump straining. You know, it's trying to draw water through, but it's just getting packed in with stuff. Uh, And as a kid, I think we we develop these sort of filters that we have a thought and we say it, and we get reprimanded for it because it's rude to say that about someone. Um, Or we know what to say to get a pat on the head, like, oh, such good manners. You said please and thank you so you can have what you want. So we're like, wow, this is great. I'll just say that, and then I'll get what I want, right? Or I shouldn't lie because I'll get in trouble. It's not because lying is so bad. It's because I've been in trouble, and I don't want that to happen again. We, we've used different language around our peers than around those who we wanted to impress. I would always be amazed at the, I worked with a bunch of tradies and, and to see the fellas clean up for the Christmas party was amazing. Like the language, the clothing, everything just changed. I'm like, I'm around different people. It was like being around actors for a night. Like I know who you are. You can't, I, I know you. But wow, you could have fooled me for a day. So as believers, we know when our maturity filter or maybe our Christian filter has switched on and filtered something out that we shouldn't say, there's some harsh language that's not good, and there are times where there can be junk that spills out of our mouths, and that didn't come from God, that's a product of your flesh, that's a product of your heart that needs transformation. And too often, we can recognize our filters are getting clogged up, but we don't ever think about the source where those things are coming from and deal with them. Deal with the source of the problem. We are so apt to get this wrong. We think, I need to quit the gossip. I need to quit swearing. I need to speak more gently. No, that's not the point here. The point is, Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. It's about getting a new heart and a new mind and a mind that's washed with the water of the word and then the source is now cleansed so the junk isn't getting into the pool that's being sucked into the filters. That we need to change. Say, man, I'm having these thoughts. Well, why? It's not just because of what's going on in the world or the thing that you were exposed to. That's what we want to say. If I could just remove this influence from my life I'm better off. Now, there are things that we should set a boundary for, something that's wicked and evil and tends to temptation and sin. Remove that, right? When those palms start growing in my backyard, I know as soon, within a day or two, I need to cut off those pods or else they are gonna open up the flowers, the pollen, the little beads are gonna drop. So I gotta get to them. When we see sin in our hearts, we need to do that. We need to say these angry thoughts, these hurtful thoughts, these comments, I need to cut those off. I need to get rid of them. Now, see, I, I live in a hired house, so we can't just cut the palms down. <laughs> and right now, it's almost like you're in that situation, living in a body of flesh. There are aspects of your life you cannot just remove yourself from because you're living in a body that's, that is facing the curse of sin. You are going to be delivered. You are going to be saved from that. But, uh, so we have to not just make... We can't make peace with this body of sin. It must be crucified with Christ so that the life of Christ is now lived out through us. And he gives us that new heart and new mind. Having our eyes open to the truth, we have to repent of that plank in the eye, that thought, that word that we never say, but it was there and our filters caught it, but say, Lord, change me. Change my desires. Change the way I think. Make me more like you. God wants the filter to stay clean. God wants to bring us to a place where we can say anything that comes into our heads. Anything that we feel. Because it's been given to us by him. Because we're walking with him. Because we're treasuring what's good. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? If you could truly say exactly how you feel or exactly what you think at any given time because it's the love of Jesus that's coming through you. It's edifying to others. It's kind, it's gentle, it's weighted just right. The truth, there's no backing down from it. It's being held forth but it's for the good of others and you're walking in it yourself so there's no hypocrisy. That's what I want but I still need that. I need to keep seeking the Lord that he would show me and then I would respond obediently to what he's saying. David prayed in Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You hear that? Where he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Because if the meditation of our heart is acceptable, won't your words be acceptable? And because God is our redeemer, he's purchased us, he is in us, he is our Lord, he is our Savior, we are greatly helped to accomplish that. He is doing it in us. So it's for us to submit to that work and realize, Lord, I'm the blind one, I'm the hypocrite, I'm the one who's just full of cursing and wickedness and these thoughts, Wow, I want to deal with the source. I want to deal with this heart because I know you want to, Lord. Luke 6:46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, Jesus is discussing this to people who call him Lord, and he's asking them a question. Lord, that means supreme, master, controller. And he says, you're calling me Lord, Lord. You're calling me master. You're calling me controller. Why don't you do the things that I say? This is not a rhetorical question. It would be so convenient if it was. I would love for this to be a rhetorical question, but it actually has definite answers. We might call him Lord because we want salvation, or we want help, or we want protection, or we want provision. We might not do what he says because I don't want to, I don't think I have to, or I would rather not. Right, you you can answer this question honestly, but this is a question that has definite answers for you to supply. If you call me Lord Lord, why do you call me Lord Lord and you do not do what I say? Now, identifying and repenting of hypocrisy, that is a key theme throughout this entire passage, right? We got the blind person thinking he can lead the blind. We've got the blind person thinking he could be led by the blind. We have um, the one blinded by the plank in their eye, thinking they sought clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. We've got a tree who fancies itself to be good, but it's bearing bad fruit. And now he talks about the people who hear his words. He exposes the truth and he says, the people who are calling me Lord, Lord, I'll put them in two categories. There's one who, and they're both building a house. Both these men, they're building a house and they both came to him and they heard his words. But it's what they did with his words that was the difference. Um, the first one, it said, the one who comes to me, who hears me and does what I say, I'll compare him to a person who's building a house by digging deep, laying the foundation. He's like it went down to bedrock. He has a nice firm foundation, before he builds his house. The other group, the other man, he came to Christ. He heard him. He did nothing, but he built a house without a foundation. So it's like you have two guys building a house, so they're both working. They're both laboring. They're both uh, making progress, it seems, on the outside. And if you were to drive by these homes upon completion, you would marvel. You'd be like, wow, this looks great. You know, the new paint and the imported tiles and the modern appliances, and, and uh, no luxury has been spared. It, the, the lights turn on, the plumbing works. It's just, it looks like a place where you'd want to live. But underneath the shine of the polished aluminium and stainless, and under the shine of those new tiles and the, the smell of fresh paint, there is one unseen yet glaring difference. One of the houses doesn't have a foundation. They both looked perfectly habitable and fine. It wasn't until a storm came and the floods rose and the house was put under strain that the cracks began to appear in one and it just fell down. It collapsed completely because it was not founded on the rock. Whereas the other one, having been founded on the rock, The stream was beat against it, and it says it wasn't even shaken. It stood firm because it was founded on that that rock. Who is Christ? Our rock of salvation, Jesus. said the ruin of the second house was great. And it's interesting to me that the ruin of the second house wasn't about what the man didn't know. It's about what he didn't do. He knew how to build a house. It didn't say one house looked great and the other house was made of straw. No, it looked like a good house. They were both building a life. They were both living a life on earth of success. It, it looked like they were both profitable and knew what they were doing, but there was something unseen because he heard what Jesus said, came to Jesus, heard Jesus, but did nothing about what Jesus said. We can be concerned about a sin that we do coming to light, but see, God knows what we don't do, how we have not listened and what we haven't done. And that can be our downfall, what you haven't done. It would take the flood of trials, ultimately judgment, to reveal the strength of one foundation and the lack of the other. And I think about Australia, right? We've had a pretty wild run. We've had the drought, We've had the fires. We've had floods. Now we have this global pandemic, and there's economic uncertainty. It's like life is not stopping. People's jobs are being affected. People are suffering the loss of loved ones. Um, Retirement funds may be evaporating. There's shortages in the shops. There's restrictions on how we can meet and gather. And it's like you're being bombarded constantly with bad news about the state of the world. And, and like if you were to plot a trajectory of, if things are getting better and better and better, or are things getting worse and worse? We'd probably say, well, it seems like it needs to get worse before it's going to get better. So you who call Jesus Lord, how many anxious and worrying thoughts are being caught in your filter? And how many are coming out? Are concerns and complaints spilling over, or are you able to praise God from the heart resting in Him? Because I know what we would all rather do. We would all want to be in the place of praising God, of extolling Him, of honoring Him, of considering Him rather than these these things. Now, I don't desire trials or tribulations, but bless the Lord that He shakes the world so that people will come to their senses that before the eternal judgment, we have the opportunity to inspect our foundations and just say, hey, look at those cracks that have appeared. There's a structural problem with your foundation for life. And to say, I need Jesus to be my salvation. I need him to be my rock because I am shaken. He says, if you hear his words, you come to him, you hear his words and you do what he says, you will not be shaken. That house will not be shaken. It will not fall. You have security in Jesus through faith in him. In troubles and trials, we pray that people come to Jesus for the first time. But Jesus, again, he's addressing hypocrisy in his own people. People who say, Lord, Lord. Those who call him Lord without obedience. Who have fear, worry, and greed on the throne instead of Jesus Christ, who is the king. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 13. For a point of application, Luke 13, starting in verse 23. Jesus is speaking to Jews, and we see they were curious about how many people would be saved. And having God as their father, having received his laws and his favor throughout their history, I'm sure that... If you ask them, who's going to be saved? They would say, well, if anyone's going to be saved, it's going to be us. We're God's people. We follow his laws. We're the ones who have, have given sacrifices to him. We're the ones who worship and praise him. The heathen, they're worshiping these idols, but we're worshiping the one true God. And they were praising him and, and uh, seeking to please him. So, of course, right? It's a no-brainer. They were children of Abraham. They, they kind of deserved it to some extent. That's what their thought process is. So Luke 13, starting in verse 23. Then one, one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So in this parable, you have the master of the house. He rises up. It seems like he's hosting a gathering and he shuts the door. He shuts the door and there's all these people that are clamoring at the door. They're knocking at the door and say, hey, Lord, Lord, open to us. And what does he say? He says, I do not know you where you are from. It's like he was familiar to them, but they were strangers to him. He's like, I don't even know you. I don't even know where you've come from. And he doesn't know their names. He, he, they had eaten with him at a party. He had taught in their towns, but they had never been introduced. Now, Jesus, our master, he knows every sheep of his pasture. He knows how many are there. He calls all the stars by name. Jesus knows every person who's trust and obeyed him whose faith is evidenced through obedience. Aren't the names of his chosen written in the Lamb's book of life? Right, they're written there. He has it all written down and yet there's these strangers coming to him. God knows everything, but in this parable, he's like the foreigner, the one who's foreign to God, that one's not gonna be let in. And he says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, they're gonna be brought in um, those who think their salvation is of the law, those who think that they are righteous through their efforts to keep the law, you're going to be cast out while they're going to be brought in. And we could say the same about Christians, you know, who go to church um, or even during a global pandemic, you know, like I went to church when it was risky. I remember back in those days, right? We're not going to let anything stop us from worshiping the Lord But what's the foundation like? Is it on Jesus or is it on your own efforts? Jesus is the door through whom we enter. When they're knocking at the door, and it's like so cool that Jesus in Revelation 3, he's knocking on the door of our hearts. He's coming to us. He's saying, let me in. Because he wants to spend time with us. And he says, people from the north, the south, the east, and the west, they're all going to come. And they're going to sit down in the kingdom of God. You're invited. There's a place for you. And he's saying this to people who thought it was just the Jews who would be brought into the kingdom of God. But he's saying, it's open to everybody who I know. And he knows us when we know him. And I wonder if people thought, like, who are you to say to me, Jesus, telling me the door of salvation is going to be closed to me based upon what I've done? Jesus is the door he opens to those who come to him, who hear him, and obey him. We don't earn his favor through obedience, but it shows that we trust him and our faith is in him. He doesn't open the door to flatterers or to hypocrites, but to those whose hearts have been made righteous by grace through faith in him. So the question is, if we call Jesus Lord, are we doing what he says? Does our life resemble his life? Because a good tree does not bear corrupt fruit. How great it is that we have on a world that's going to someday dissolve, we can have a firm, solid, eternal foundation on Jesus Christ where we will not be shaken, where anything can happen. It says the mountains can be thrown into the sea, but we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry. And I was thinking of that passage in Psalm 91. Um, just during prayer this morning, and considering uh, the implications for us and how we can look to the Lord and trust in Him. Psalm 91, starting in verse 9, it says, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. And then in verse 14, Because He has set His love upon me, therefore will I deliver Him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. How awesome to have a God like that, a king who loves us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are so good, that you are faithful and kind and generous, that you've given us life through Jesus. And that you have given us this uh, really instructive and insightful and piercing word. Why do we call you Lord if we won't do what you say? And I pray you would put in us, Lord, a heart to do your will. That you would transform us through the renewing of our mind. That we would place our faith in you and choose to follow you and humble and submit ourselves before you, Lord. That we would have clean filters. Because we are treasuring that which is good. We treasure you and we're walking with you and we're led by you in the things that we say and do. And even our feelings, they have been brought under submission of your grace and of the knowledge that you are eternal and good. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and I pray that that you would cause them to take courage, that you would place in their hearts a hope of your salvation, that they would trust in your word, that we would all walk in your ways, Lord, we would not be filled with pride or hypocrisy, but that we would look to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and your mercy endures uh, from everlasting to everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.